they had the peakers right, co-located right around the cities and, and, and neighborhoods that were underprivileged. That was just the way it was because you, you didn't need transmission. You had this closeness that right. you could just have a cable from the peaker right down to, to the downtown or wherever the power was needed. And you didn't need a large infrastructure. Welcome to the Flux Capacitor, a podcast about the future of electricity. I'm Francis Bradley of the Canadian Electricity Association. This is episode 051, number 51 of the Flux Capacitor. When I launched this podcast, I wanted to share with the listener the types of conversations that were already taking place within the industry sector about the future of the business of electricity and what the future transformations will mean for electricity companies, regulators, society, and customers. These were the sorts of conversations I was often having at the margins of meetings and conferences with industry leaders, stakeholders, government representatives, regulators, and industry partners. I wanted the listener to hear what we've been discussing over coffee, during a taxi ride, over dinner, or stuck in an airport departure lounge. With the rise of the Omicron variant, once again, this podcast was not recorded face-to-face, but using Zoom. And speaking of Omicron, you may notice that I sound a little congested on this podcast. I'm recovering from a bad cold that may or may not be COVID-related, as I was unable to confirm one way or another, given the scarcity of testing and the priority, rightly, of testing for healthcare and communal living situations. On to today's podcast and today's guest. My name is Serge Abergel. I'm Chief Operating Officer of Hydro-Quebec Energy Services, which is a subsidiary of Hydro-Quebec responsible for energy export projects in the United States. Serge joined me to talk about the Canada-U.S. electricity relationship, the role Quebec hydropower plays in meeting current and future energy needs in the Northeast, GHG emissions reductions, and the challenges of building infrastructure in New England and New York. We also talk about engagement with Indigenous communities, including the partnership Hydro-Quebec has struck with the Mohawks of Ganawake on a cross-border transmission project. We close the conversation with Serge's recommended addition to the Flux Capacitor Book Club. Here is my conversation with Serge recorded in January 2022. Delsh, thanks for taking the time to join the podcast. Maybe that would be a good place to start. I know Hydro-Quebec very well. I'm a customer of Hydro-Quebec. But, you know, for, for the listeners that may not be quite so familiar with Hydro, maybe just the, you know, the 30-second thumbnail sketch so people kind of understand where it fits in the, in the universe. So Hydro-Quebec is the largest renewable energy producer in North America. It's also the sole distributor, well, I say sole, the most important distributor of electricity in Quebec with over 4 million customers. And in terms of energy production, clean energy production, we're talking about upwards of 37,000 megawatts of of clean hydro production. Yeah. And then the the division that you're involved in is uh, the outward facing one, right? That's right. So, so on my side of things, we, we are responsible for exports. Hydro-Quebec exports roughly 30 
terawatt hours per year to the United States and surrounding markets. I include Canada in there because we do exports to the United States and to Ontario and, and the Maritimes. Uh, but the bulk of the exports, like 75% of them is to the US. So New York, New England markets. Yeah. And that's where we have opportunities for growth as well with new projects. Yeah. And that's, that's where maybe I, I, I thought we could start uh, the conversation. It is not insignificant. You know, when we look at the, the Canada-U.S. relationship, uh, overall electricity, uh, Canadian electricity sales into the U.S. Uh, on, a, on, a, on a national basis are, are not enormous, but it's really important on some specific regions. And, and that's why I wanted to, to chat with you, because in the Northeast, uh, the, the role that well, Ontario Hydro, Ontario Power Generation is certainly part of it, but uh, Hydro-Québec in particular is a critical component of the supply in New York and in New England already today, right? I mean, we're, this is not a drop in the bucket. This is this is what keeps the system operating. That's right. It's not a drop in the bucket. I mean, if you take New England, it's it's roughly 11%, I think, of exports to, uh, of energy consumed in New England comes from Hydro-Quebec. So you're, you're talking about uh, probably 15 terawatt hours per year yep. that is consumed there. And from there, we also talk about adding on to it. So you're talking about the NECC project, the New England Clean Energy Connect yep. through Maine and Massachusetts. That brings an extra 10 terawatt hours when we get to, to finally put it in service. Right. And there's also a new contract that's in the works with New York, another roughly 10 terawatt hours on that side. So we have a significant part of the energy being consumed in those neighboring states, but it'll also be growing in the next few years because there's such demand for clean energy. And then yeah. that's where this year plus value with our base load, clean hydropower. Yeah. Yeah. And so I guess there's kind of two sides to this. I mean, one side is, is the actual, you know, megawatts, the electricity that, that's consumed. Um, and then, you know, we can talk a little bit about what that means for, you know, both for, for uh, people here, uh, and people in New England, but the other side of it is the stability, right? I mean, there's, there are grid impacts as well. Uh, and uh, I, I, even today, there's significant grid impacts and stability of the grid as a result of basically an enormous battery that sits north of the Canada-US border in, in Quebec. So it, it's, you're absolutely right. This is one of the key advantages or the key benefits from this, this hydro uh, network of production that we have because it has that storage capacity to store somewhere around 170 terawatt hours. That's a lot of numbers I'm throwing at you, but essentially yeah. it's, it can store the full consumption of Quebec for one whole year if it right. stops raining tomorrow. So that's, that's in time is almost hard to grasp, but it's a lot of water. It's a lot of energy stored. So that, that battery, as, as, as people like to call it, mm -hmm. it is very useful for neighboring markets because our neighbors recognize the need to transition to clean energy, which yep. is positive. They, they share our goals and we share their goals, which is wonderful in that sense. Um, but the resources they have access to are intermittent. So you have a lot of wind that's coming up around right. the Northeast. You have solar, you have some storage, but it's not on the scale and available for such long periods of time as what you have in reservoirs. Yep. So this is where these two different types of clean energy meet and are actually very um, compatible. Yeah. So when there's no wind, when there's no power, when there's no power on that side, if, if you have nothing else, no clean power, this is when the hydro can come in and, and balance out the intermittents. However, if they have too much wind, 
or too much solar or combination, yep. we can use those same transmission lines and send it our way and we can store more water in the reservoirs in the meanwhile and use this intermittent power that's available for a certain number of hours. Yeah, and, and I know this has been looked at in a number of different jurisdictions uh, across the, the, the Canada-US border, looking at that Canada-US relationship and the role that, that Canadian hydropower in particular plays to unlocking renewables. Uh, in the U.S. and, and you know I, I recall reading uh, about and I've included in fact references to it sometimes when I've been speaking about that relationship of you know for example uh, Manitoba and the, the Midwestern United States and that now that there is more transmission from Manitoba in the Midwestern United States in the Midwestern United States they're now able to develop more intermittent renewables in their jurisdiction because of those connections, right? And it's the same the same thing that you're seeing in the Northeast, it, I would imagine. It, it's the same thing. You, you, it, it is a very natural conclusion to come to that this baseload power, this hydropower is available on demand, uh, stably priced, that you can actually commit to long-term contracts, what's predictable and so on. Is, is a very good fit for intermittent renewables. And it's an enabler for these, these resources to get, get deployed and built up. And you right. can actually achieve a grid that's essentially fully clean if you, if you manage that uh, properly and to a large extent. I, I think where, where we see the issues is that, uh, you know, people want to transition and, and I'm talking about general populations. Yeah. But, the, but, but when it comes down to actually building what's needed, the transmission that's needed, that's where you fall into issues. And then, you know, I heard someone, I heard someone say a saying that I thought was very interesting. They said, you know, everybody wants to go to heaven once, once they, they, they move on, but nobody wants to die. And this is, if you, if you, if you translate this into our energy world, yeah, everybody wants to transition, but nobody wants to see any new infrastructure. So, so this is the challenge that we are facing. And, um, well, I'm, I'm not sure I'll keep, I guess we, we keep thinking about how to, to, uh, to face these issues. And there's no obvious solution. Education, dialogue, yep. uh, collaboration, regions working together, it's all avenues, but it's not a perfect recipe either. Yeah, and, yeah, this is, yeah and this has come up on, on, a, on a number of previous conversations that I've had on, on these podcasts. Uh, it, is, it is just uh, difficult and, and increasingly difficult to build infrastructure. Um, you know, there, there are just challenges in, in terms of getting infrastructure cited. And maybe, you know, we can circle back to that. But, but one of the questions I ask uh, folks that come onto the podcast is uh, about their journey. Uh, and I, I, I'm guessing the, uh, the listener would be interested in your journey. So, you know, you're, you're COO now of, of uh, this division at Detroit Quebec. Was what was your journey to, to to this role, or was this something that, as I always make the joke, when you were a young a young kid in the, on the playground, is this what you always dreamed of doing? How did, how did you get to this role? So I'm, uh, I, I guess I'm. Uh, uh, it, it's it wasn't planned. None of this was planned. Uh, mm. The energy sector wasn't something that I was thinking about earlier in my life. Uh, I first I finished university. I joined the air force. I was in the military for for many years. Right. Um, and um, and when I came out of the military, I, I, I had transitioned from the military to, to uh, public affairs. Mm. And so after roughly 10 years, I came out of the military, uh, joined uh, the Correctional Service of Canada, which, again, has nothing to do with energy. So these are federal jails. Spent some time uh, working with them, not in jail, 
but working <laughs> with the jazz. <laughs> and uh, I, I eventually came to Hydro-Quebec, but the reason, I guess at, at the time I was, you know, what, what was appealing for hydro from my standpoint at the time was that I had been used to dealing with controversial issues uh, yeah. at the correctional service in the military previously. And Hydro-Quebec, like eight years ago when I joined, was a company that, that was at the center of controversy. It was not a well-liked uh, utility in Quebec. Mm. It, was, uh, it, it was controversial. There were issues. They, they would often be in the paper. And so I initially joined there as a spokesperson, dealt with this controversy. And, uh, you know, luck has it that I joined with, uh, at a time when several other people joined as well. And, and that company started to evolve and modernize itself, you know, in terms of being more open to customer needs, being more sensitive to communications issues. When you have a controversy, you actually come out and speak about it, talk about it, not, not hide, you know. And so all these things did happen and um, started working on export projects, which were very controversial, still are. Yeah. Uh, and uh, sort of developed an expertise on that side, spent a lot of time in the U.S., mm -hmm. uh, neighbors, our, our neighboring provinces, uh, states here in New York, New England, and a lot of time in Maine. And so this, this, this CEO thing was, I think, a, a natural transition as to that, that, that pathway, which was completely unplanned. Yeah. What did you study in university? Uh, I actually studied in business school, so oh, okay. a business degree. Okay. So again, you know, and I think when, you, um, when, you, when you're younger, and, and I was younger, and I don't want to sound like I'm... I'm giving advice or not advice, but my sharing my wisdom, which is not mm -hmm. at all, but it was, it, I don't think I ever really thought about what, what I was going to be doing later on. I wanted to be in something exciting, you know, and, and this is how I winded up in the military. Yeah. It, 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 as a direct entry officer, I had nothing to do with, with planning a career in um, energy, nor did I think it was exciting. However, right. and this yeah. is where things get interesting for our industry right now is that we are at this time where you take a very conservative, older industry where people spend their lifetime, essentially. Uh, and I have colleagues that have been there for a lifetime. Yeah. And, and you take that industry and you present it, one of the greatest challenges that the world has ever faced, which is mm -hmm. climate change, transitioning to uh, cleaner sources of power, finding yeah. the right balance in some cases. If, if, you know, if you can't be 100%, what can you do with what's there and what you can add to it? And so you take this very boring old industry and all of a sudden it becomes extremely exciting. This mm -hmm. is almost like first, you know, in, in some, some instances, it's like the beginning of aviation or it's, it's something that nobody before us has had to deal with. And yeah. In the traditional sense, you just expanded your network. You did whatever you did. If you had fossil fuel peakers, you added fossil fuel peakers. If you had hydropower in Quebec, because you're lucky you had the right topography, you added uh, power plants. Yeah. But today we're talking about this dramatic change where the boring old industry now is not so boring anymore. And we are facing these, these critical choices with challenges that not only involve technical issues, mm -hmm. but also involve, uh, I would say, communication issues, yeah. the greater public. How do we get the public to understand what we're doing? So yeah. very exciting time. It's, it's not at all what, you know, maybe if I'd known about that when I was younger, I would have been excited about it. <laughs> Yeah, but no, I think I think you I think you you've touched on something really important, and, and that is uh, the the changes that have taken place recently 
and, and I, I like to think of it in terms of um, sort of never before uh, have we had a, an un, this unprecedented uh, level of overall societal expectations with respect to electricity. 15 years ago, 20 years ago, uh, uh, you know, it was electricity was one among uh, many different uh, sources of energy uh, and, and, you know, choices were made uh, just based upon, you know, a variety of factors. But now our aspirations uh, as, a, as a society to be GHG free by 2050, for example, are now uh, hinging entirely on our ability uh, to um, massively electrify uh, and decarbonize the economy. Uh, and yeah, that, that, that is a, that's a very, very different game than it was uh, a generation ago. Now, um, you know, we're, we're expecting the electricity sector to be able to deliver upon that future that we're, that we're all hoping to see. And it, it, it's a transformational change because mm -hmm. of, of the challenges that it presents. Yeah. But it's in more than one way, because it's not just about what kind of what kind of. Uh, new production you'll bring to the grid, how you'll build up your grid and so on, but it's how you run your business because you cannot, if you don't have the credibility as a business, so take Hydro-Quebec, if you're not, have a good relationship with your customers, if you don't have trust, if you don't have their confidence, the day you show up and you say, well, I need to build this infrastructure or this transmission line or this new production facility or whatever it is you need, yeah. but you don't have that trust, you will not be able to, to move forward and do what you need to do in order to meet the challenges that are in front of you. So it's transformational, both in terms of what we need to do, but also how we operate our business now. Yeah. Because yeah. the customer, although often we're monopolies and, and we, people assume that whatever we do, the customers are stuck with us, they have great power over us because mm -hmm. they can actually stop you in your tracks uh, from, from achieving what you need to achieve. Yeah, you know, I think I think that's interesting, and it and it it kind of brings me back to one of my uh, very recent preoccupations, and that is is uh, what I see increasingly as a disconnect between uh, aspirations, uh, and it, it's a complaint I have sometimes when I'm talking to policy people uh, in, in government uh, that that we we have aspirations, for example, with respect to a, a net zero grid by 2035 and net zero by 2050. Um, but the aspirations are not necessarily being met with uh, policy decisions that are going to uh, move us uh, in, the, in that direction in, in an efficient way. And, and I, I, I was thinking of that uh, prior to uh, our conversation in the context of, of New England as well. And, and um, you know, the, the United States, President Biden uh, has, has committed the United States to a, a net zero electricity grid by 2035. I, I know uh, the individual states in the Northeast have, have targets with respect to GHG uh, reduction targets. It does seem, though, that those aspirations are incompatible uh, or, or, or don't necessarily match with what's actually taking place in some of these conversations on the ground. You mentioned the New, Energy, uh, New England Clean Energy Connect. We, we seem to have gotten cross-threaded in, in that conversation. Uh, and the, the challenges uh, with, uh, with respect to, to building that project are ones are challenges that are not going to move us any closer to those aspirations. They're, in fact, going to move us further away. That's right. So uh, maybe on two levels, I'll, I'll, answer, uh, I'll answer that. The, the first one is there's, there's ambitious aspirations from, from states, surrounding states, and then yeah. within Canada as well. And you, know, you mentioned a disconnect 
um, which is which is not the way I look at it. I tend to think that it's it's a delay. So so policy making, you're right. You're absolutely right. Is it, it's lagging behind. Yeah. And so we can have all the aspirations we want, but nothing will ever get done if we don't change our policies to bring us there. Right. And right. And that's that is absolutely what's what's uh, what's missing when we have discussions with uh with different government stakeholders across the, the different states and, and and even at the federal level in the u.s they, they recognize that so it's not something that i think people are aware of that i think the question is how do we get there and that, that is a frustrating thing when you look at, at projects like the necc and you say okay you have a project here that takes advantage of this this hydro capacity, this large hydro capacity in Quebec, uh, where you actually have excess energy at certain times that you could export and, 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 and avoid fossil burning sources of power in the US and in New England, especially um, removing essentially the equivalent of 700,000 cars from the road every year. So that, that would be that one project, okay? And, and you have initiatives like a referendum that, that essentially asks people uh, after a very very ugly campaign, whether yeah. they want to vote for this project or not. Uh, you throw in there all the false information that, that we can all very easily access on social media and on yeah. the internet. Yeah. And, and the involvement of competitors. Uh, and, and again, you know, certain companies have an interest in not seeing this transition done. And ethically, there's a minority of them that will actually do something about it. Right. and try and stop it. And I say minority because it's important to, to understand that it's not all, it's not at all, all companies right. are against right. this transition. In the fossil fuel, it, it, we shouldn't vilify an industry. The fossil fuel industry has done lots to, to clean up, I think. But when you look at certain companies, so in the yeah. States, we have Nextera from Juno Beach, Florida, who's invested, I think, something like $30 million US in this campaign against this, against this one project so they can yeah. protect their their fossil fuel installations and, and, and nuclear assets in the region. These are it, 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 the, the whole mix of all of that is very troubling and it gets you further away from exactly what we should be doing, which is working together yeah. to decarbonize. Um, so, so this is, this is one case where I'm not sure what, what the solution is. You know, we mm-hmm. campaigned, we gave all the facts, um, at the end, people make a decision with the information yep. they have, with, with what they understand of a very complex issue. In my views, this is not an issue that should be left. Uh, you know, it's, it's an issue. It, these are complex energy issues. And when we give them up to referendum and we some, ask a question that's one line, yes or no, right. we, we're not really giving people a chance to, to fully uh, grasp what they're voting for. Yeah. So th- that is preoccupying. Yeah, yeah, and 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 as well, in addition to the uh, interests of of uh, people that, that may be opposed to, to to this kind of a project, uh, I mean, I see, I, I keep thinking of two things that that are uh, of concerning. Number one, and you mentioned uh, one of them, and, and and that is, you know, we've we've got. Um, uh, these uh, um, aspirations, uh, we we do want to see GHG emissions uh, reduced overall, uh, and that and this kind of goes runs counter to that. But the the other part of it as well is it's got to be what at least a decade now that NERC has been talking about congestion uh, with respect to uh, to getting fossil fuels even into the New England market. Um, and you know, here we are. We're recording this on on a, on a record cold day, 
um, uh, you know, uh, the, the people have been concerned uh, about um, the, you know, the uh, dependency of the current electricity system in the Northeast on natural gas and natural gas uh, constraints with respect to, to transmission. Those things seem both seem to run counter to to the decision. Uh, first off, that was made in the referendum, but but the the uh, you know the overall. I'm not, and I'm not asking you to get into the minds necessarily of of those who may have been opposed to the project, but it does seem to run counter to a number of uh, a number of very major themes here: GHG reductions, but also uh, constraints with respect to even getting uh, fossil fuels into the region. Uh, absolutely, the, what you what I have realized, though, and, and maybe four years of looking at this main issue and, and the whole New England project is that, <clears throat> you know, when, when a producer of clean energy like Hydro-Quebec uh, partners up with someone, uh, another company in Avangrid in, uh, in, in the United States to build projects yep. uh, and to, to send clean energy down, down the way to Massachusetts, who's made a very courageous decision to transition away from fossil fuels, um, it's not something that the companies involved can carry by themselves. And, right. and so to your point, you, you mentioned the regulatory instances. So, so they are concerned. The eyes on New England is concerned about brownouts, blackouts, and yep. not having sufficient energy. And, you know, they, 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 they write it in their, their uh, just right in October, I think they wrote their projection mm -hmm. for this coming winter and they, yep. they voiced their concerns very clearly. Uh, but unfortunately, they voiced it after this, this, you know, this whole debate. So I think the point is we, as, as companies that are in this industry, we cannot carry this energy transition by ourselves. Yeah. And so we are part of the solution. But when we talk about these, these debates in society about why are we doing this, why has Massachusetts chosen this clean energy because they're trying to clean up their mix and so on, well, at the end, it's not just for Hydro-Quebec and Avangrid to carry it by themselves. There's players right. in there that, yeah. that are making these choices because it's their transition. So we, we are supporting them. We want to be partners, but it's not our transition. Yeah. yeah. So, so it's important for everybody to play their role. And as, as we evolve and we learn from all of this, we're shifting away from this traditional sort of promoter uh, concept where these big, large companies would build infrastructure and they'd be the ones promoting and defending the, pro the project. To today's reality where a state is making a very courageous decision and it's their transition and we are part of that solution. We work mm -hmm. with them, but, but we defend the, the projects and the initiatives together. Because <clears throat> if I tell you in New England, we were actually explaining to people what energy transition is and why climate change is real. Mm -hmm. I mean, you, you assume that everybody thinks like, like some, like most of us do, that that are aware of of, of the information and the science that that's out there, at least the basic facts. Yeah. But but it is it, it doesn't play out like that when you when you go on to some some of the communities, they have other concerns. Their concerns are much more localized, and and so our great concerns about climate change are maybe far away from their concerns, which are very genuinely locally rooted right and and we need to we we all need to sort of accept that and and maybe not assume that this is that everybody speaks the same language that we do yeah yeah
So we talked we talked about the, the New England Clean Energy Connect. Uh, you, you've also got a, a significant project in partnership with New York State and, and assisting in their in their transition. How's how's that relationship going? And because I, I know. Uh, once again, uh, you know, uh, there is a, a very significant role today that's being played by electricity from 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 Quebec. So in New York, things are maybe different. They're very different from New England in the sense that in the sense that there's not the same level of debate so far. It, it, it may come at one point or another, but as far as today's concerned, it's 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 actually a very fact based debate. Um, and some of the things that that I just mentioned about this is not just a project for utilities, it's a project for the states that are transitioning and so on, are, are actually very relevant in New York, where the authorities have taken a, a leadership role in explaining what they're doing and defending their decision. They've been extremely rigorous in, in, in asking us uh, a wide array of questions on different topics. And so, so today we're at a very different space, you know, in New York. The process is not finished yet. We still have what they call the public service commissions process that, that's ongoing till February 8th. Mm-hmm. Um, and after that, the, the, the commission will essentially make a decision somewhere in March to confirm that the recommendation from the state agencies, which is nice certain in this case here, um, are, are uh, something that's in the interest of New Yorkers. We're, we feel fairly confident. We've we've done all the work for years and years. This is a project that's been in the works for ten years. Yeah. Um, so so it's it's it, it will be beneficial for the city of New York, and they have exactly the same, if not worse, uh, issues that you mentioned for New England. So the city of New York, at peak times, has a need for more energy, more whether fossil fuel, whatever it is. They they are really uh, constricted in terms right. of their supply. And so this is a clear solution, not just a transition to cleaner fuels, but also to bring in additional energy to a city that's, uh, as, as you can imagine, that has a very large appetite for energy. And they're, they're I mean, they're currently peaking with plants in the city, right? I mean, they're- they're, they're, they're right. At, that's they're right, they're, they're in the city. And, and, and worst off, Francis, it's, it, the, the peakers are in the city, but they are not in, they're located in the um, in lower income neighborhoods. Yeah, and just so, just again for the for the for the listener, when we talk about peakers, we're talking about we're talking about plants that, that are burning fossil fuels in communities, not not out out in the countryside, not in an industrial that, park. That's right. You're talking about oil peakers, generally burning oil, and they are located in communities. So you take uh, one that's called. Uh, Big Alice. Big Alice uh, is a peaker that's located in Queens, New York. Right. Uh, in an underprivileged part of, of the neighborhood. Right. And where, depending how the wind blows, which is usually a westerly flow, so it pushes the emissions not into Manhattan, but actually away from Manhattan into a lower income neighborhood. So much so that they call the neighborhood Asma Alley because wow. there's a higher incidence of children having asthma. So th- that's the model, the model that, that, that the American model that was in, in a lot of the cities, because <clears throat> people were not aware of the, the inconvenience and, 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 and the dangers associated, associated with this, this, this model, they had the peakers right, co-located right around the cities, usually yeah. in lesser um, in, in, in neighborhoods that were underprivileged. And that was just the way it was because you, you didn't need transmission. You had 
this closeness that right. you could just have a cable from the peaker right down to to the downtown or wherever the power was needed, and you didn't need a large infrastructure. Yeah, one of the I, I, I'm, in a, I'm thinking back to a, an event that uh, I participated in with, with one of your colleagues in, in New York City a, a number of years ago. And, uh, you know, the conversation was about the potential role uh, electricity uh, and Canadian electricity could could play in the uh, in the New York uh, energy uh, future. Uh, and there were a, a number of people that spoke to me afterwards uh, that talked about, well, you know, we, we see actual opportunities here uh, for for jobs uh, that, that wouldn't exist otherwise. And, and, you know, in conversations, I found out from them that they were talking about, in fact, expanding uh, peak generation plants uh, uh, in in New York and in, and in New York City, which seemed counterintuitive. But the other thing that uh, I was hearing about from folks uh, was concerns expressed about Indigenous uh, peoples in Canada and and, and their role. Uh, and that struck me as as a little bit odd because I, I do know, uh, if not simply because I, I work in the in the sector. Um, uh, and, and and captive by the sector, but you know, I, I am aware of a, a lot of the work uh, that has taken place and the, the partnerships between uh, Canadian electricity companies and, and, and Indigenous communities. And I know uh, that's been a, a very significant priority for for Hydro Quebec as well. So, what what kind of a response? What kind of arguments do you, do, do you bring to the dialogue when those issues are, are brought up? Well, so you're right in the sense that it's it's always very surprising to see how Americans that that have had uh, uh, at times a difficult history with their First Nations uh, are are very focused on you know our relationship with First Nations, but yeah. their questions are genuine, and uh, you know I, I think we we sort of assume that okay, well you know back whenever it was that they had issues and today they shouldn't they shouldn't be so concerned. But I mean these are different people and societies yep. evolve. So so given their questions, their questions are genuine and I, I think we have answers. I mean it's not our relationship with First Nations in Quebec is not you know it's not the perfect relationship. So but by no means and, and we should not pretend it is. Uh, but we we have a, a good track record. We we have a long standing relationship with with many of the communities if they decrees you know, the James Bay's, James Bay's agreements uh, that were signed with the government, uh, the roughly 40 and some compensation agreements that were made for the different production facilities that are on First Nation lands that, that, that are in place today. Uh, so, so there are things that have been done. There are still issues, roughly about four communities right now have voiced their concern about different issues. They've come onto the markets in the U.S. and said, okay, well, we have different issues you shouldn't deal with Hydro-Quebec. And we're, we're engaged with these people as well right now. We're talking to them. Right. Uh, we are trying to resolve the things that are within our control. Because you, you have to remember that some of the historical grievances concern governments, that concern land claims that have absolutely nothing to do with Hydro-Quebec. And some of the issues concern us directly and those we can work on. So, so that's one thing. And, when, and then there's opportunities. When you look at a project like, like the Champlain Hudson Power Express, to deliver power to New York. New York, okay. Well, there's yep. opportunity in there to to to, to that that we've taken a, that we've taken up and and we've we've sort of put forward solutions. Um, as as an example, the Quebec portion of the line is a partnership with the Mohawk community. So the Quebec transmission portion of the CHP line that will go all the way to New York City. It's about 50 kilometers yep. on the south shore of Montreal. Here is <clears throat> built in partnership with the Mohawks 
of Kanawagi. So they own mm-hmm. a stake in that line and they will get revenue from that line. So they're business partners. So, so, you okay, know, they, so, they so when, when you say partnerships, they, they actually own, uh, they have a, they, they, own they have ownership in that asset. line. Okay. They have ownership in line to be built. Right. Uh, and when we, when we submitted our proposal for New York, we submitted it as partners with the Mohawks. So, ah. you know, there's opportunities and someone might say, well, you know, uh, oh, that's nice, but that's because you wanted a contract. Well, we say there's opportunity for all of us and it can be a win-win for everyone here. So we're, we're bringing clean energy to New York. That, that's good for them. We work with our friends, the Mohawks here, and, and that's, you know, that's good, works for them. And we're successful as, as Hydro-Quebec for, for, for Quebec because we export and that, that's good for everyone. So uh, there's opportunities. We just have to rethink the way we do business and, and the models are in place. Mm. Uh, so explaining all of that is, is uh, it's not a 20 second clip when, you, when you're being attacked and told, talked about, people tell you about genocide or whatever it is, yeah. but, but, it, but it, is, it, it is the job we do. We explain, we talk, and anybody that listens, we, we, have, we can, we're open for any of the questions they have. Mm-hmm. How optimistic are you that, uh, that we're going to uh, you know, continue to improve these relationships and uh, you know, we're, we're going to be able to continue to, to play a, a significant role in, in helping our partners in the Northeast uh, decarbonize? I think uh, the, at the end of the, the, the day or at the end of all of this, we, we will be successful. I think we will achieve what we, what we set out to achieve. And, and, and I think it's, you know, it's, it's, it, it'll be done with our, our friends across the border because they need this clean power. It's not like, yeah. it's not like it's just us trying to sell something. Now, uh, we will be successful, but it will be difficult all the way to the end. I don't expect that any of this to be easy. I think it will be long, painful, and there'll be delays. And uh, and this is where maybe I, I, I relate to to your to what you just said is that um, it's it, it it's at times extremely frustrating to go through this process. You know, the main yeah. the main line is is a good example. You have energy from Maine. You have energy from Massachusetts. They're getting. Uh, below market prices for Maine, you're transitioning to cleaner fuels, you're taking pollution away, you're, you're giving money to the state for different programs for heat pump, lower income housing, and so on. Yeah. And yet they say no. And so it's a frustrating process. Uh, but that, at the end, you know, y- y- we, we believe that we're on the right side. Uh, and, and you take a place like Maine, we've gotten all the permits and all the permits for the land, whether federal <laughs> or state, were all received. We actually started construction from one year for, yeah. for 12 months, invested close to $500 million. And at that point, they have a referendum and they say, we're changing the laws, but we're doing it retroactively. Mm. So we believe that's not legal right. in, in the North American context. We don't think that's legal. We re- we're respectful of their vote and their choice to push these laws into place. But so long as they're legal, this, this cannot be legal. You can't take away someone's assets retroactively. Yeah. Yeah, not 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 in North America. Yeah, it's it's interesting and I think significant that that we uh, are engaged in this conversation uh, on a on a, a regional basis and you know in, in, on the North American basis and on a global basis as well. Um, you know, recently with with Glasgow, uh, because none of these solutions um, can. Uh, uh, bring forward, you know, the, the kinds of uh, impacts that we want to have 
uh, if they're uh, completely isolated uh, and, and unless it's shared. You know, we used to talk about when we were addressing uh, acid rain and, uh, and other pollution in the 1970s and 1980s, we were talking about, uh, you know, it's a, it's a shared uh, North American airshed. But when we're talking about climate change, uh, this is this is something that that every region of the globe has to address. This otherwise, uh, the impacts will continue to be felt. We can't simply uh, be virtuous and say, "Well, in, in Canada, we've been able to reduce our GHG emissions." Uh, if we don't <clears throat> move everybody in that direction, um, it'll it'll start to feel like COVID nineteen. And if we only vaccinate the first world, uh, we're going to continue to have variants popping up. It's it, 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 if COVID nineteen was difficult, and it it was still, it's, still, it's, it's hard to get a consensus uh, for vaccination. For, for you know, there's still some folks that that yeah. with all these different waves we've gone, yeah, I'm thinking yeah. well, I don't need this vaccination, you know, and, and you're attacking my rights. But so uh, without getting into that discussion, uh, <laughs> I, I think you know it, it it is a concern when you look at this this transition that's absolutely needed. We know that the temperatures are getting warmer. So it's it's not even. It's not even debatable. Yeah. And yeah. We, we, just in our own lives, our own daily lives. Yes. I'm in Montreal. I'm a skier. So I know there's less snow. Yeah. It's not, it's obvious. It's not when you're sitting in January and there's 10 centimeters of snow on the ground. Yeah. And this is not just this year. It's for the past 10 years. Yeah. So this is real. It's not like, oh, well, we're having a bad winter. Next winter will be great. It's not exactly like that, unfortunately. Yeah. yeah. So, so this, the transition will be costly. It'll be difficult. It, it, it'll require uh, educating people, not just the utilities, but everybody involved. It'll require major, major infrastructure change. Yeah. Transmission lines. If yeah. someone doesn't want a transmission line going in their neighborhood or in their state or whatever it is, well, you know, what's needed here is not just one transmission line, it's dozens. Yeah. Because that's what we need if we want to keep our planet from. Uh, having more and more consequences of this climate change thing. Uh, so so it, it's going to be a harsh fight. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it, it, it's going to take a lot of, uh, it's going to take a lot of energy and a lot of, uh, of will from those involved, including utilities that are the, play a central role in this to push it forward with some help, I hope. But you're optimistic that we'll, uh, I, I, we'll ultimately I think, achieve. I, I think at the end we achieve. Um, and I, I think we, uh, you know, when I look at, at, at Maine, you, you, we have support from the federal, we have support from the state governor, you mm-hmm. have the, direct, the, 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 the Department of Energy, the DOE, the Secretary of Energy that supported the project publicly. Right. You've got the, the right people are saying the right things. How do we adapt policy so that we can actually achieve the, this change? How do we stop those that are, the naysayers that, that say no need to change anything or find the way we are. How do we get these people out of the conversation? And maybe at this point we start reducing emissions. And I, I think we can, I think we're, we're close. I think people are realizing what the issues are mm-hmm. and, and they're watching this and they are concerned. Cause if you can't build transmission in Maine because people change laws retroactively and they want to take away what they granted you legally years before, yeah. then you can't build transmission anywhere. And right. that, that doesn't sound like it's a North American thing. It sounds like it's something you may see in, in you know, North Korea or whatever. It's yeah. it's not yeah. North America. Yeah. 
Listen, uh, Serge, I, we, we could chat all day, as uh, you know, as, as uh, my uh, introduction sometimes to this podcast says, uh, the, the, the podcast that it attempts to present the conversations that we have when we're when we're uh, at meetings and and uh, and, and talking about these issues, uh, and often we'll spend days talking about these issues. Uh, but I, I want to thank you for taking the time to talk a little bit about it today. But before you go, uh, it's a question I ask everybody, uh, and and that is uh, to uh, give the listener a recommendation for a book, uh, either a book that you are reading or a book that you've recently read that that you would suggest that the reader pick up and and uh, and read. So I, I want to tell you about a book that I just started reading, and so. Uh, but I think it's especially relevant when, when we, uh, I mentioned we were in partnership with the Mohawks, uh, the grand chief sky deer of, of the Mohawks of Kanawagi. Yep. Uh, we were in New York just recently. And she, she spoke to uh, some of the, the environmental justice folks that are in New York that are interested in this project. They want to understand how it will reduce pollution in some of the areas that, that they represent. And she told them about the, the, the Mohawks willingness not to be, to change things, not to be what, what was called the inconvenient Indian. Right. In other words, the inconvenient Indian is, uh, from my understanding of, of the, the book that I'm about to tell you about, um, is, is this relationship where the natives were just an obstacle to development in that, that perception. And I say perception. <clears throat> and Sky Deer said, we wanna be real partners at the table. We wanna be business partners. We, we want to change this, this basic notion that uh, we are against changing things and, and, and we want to see benefits for our communities. So in discussion with one of my colleagues, uh, she recommended a book, which is called The Inconvenient Indian Thomas, by Thomas King. Thomas King, yeah, yeah. So, and it's about this relation, this to- the history behind it and this relationship uh, between I guess you say white people, but I'm not even sure it's white people today by, by non-native yeah. versus natives. And the history of it, its perceptions, and certainly shed some light on how we could do things differently in the future. So uh, that would be my recommendation, although I've not finished reading it, but I, I think that'd be a very relevant uh, book to read at this, this point in time. That is a great addition to the, to the Flux Capacitor Book Club. The Inconvenient Indian by Thomas King. Terrific. Serge, thank you very much for the recommendation. Thanks very much for, for joining the podcast. I really do appreciate it. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Looking forward to talking to you again. Thanks for joining me for this episode of The Flux Capacitor. This podcast now has a website, which can be found at thefluxcapacitor.ca. And while you're there, check out the book club page, which provides info and links to the books which have been recommended by guests on The Flux Capacitor. Please tune in for future discussions, and let's continue the electricity conversation on our Facebook page, on Twitter, and at electricity.ca.